Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Here in chapter number five, this is after the series of the burning bush. This is after Moses and Aaron for that matter, but in particularly Moses has been born in the land of uh, uh, Egypt. Sometimes you'll find it called the land of Goshen. And the land of Goshen is the uh, lower part of the kingdom of Egypt that surrounds the Nile. Of course, if you'll remember from your geography classes, uh, it's a little inverted. From our perspective, as you look at the current nation of Israel, or rather Egypt, as you look at it, uh, you would think that upper Egypt was near the Mediterranean and lower Egypt was beyond it. But the reality, geographically, it's inverted. And uh, the River Nile starts in the area of the Sudan, and it runs, from our perspective on a map, upward. It's not really running upward. It has not had the ability to defy the laws of gravity, but it looks as though it does. And it comes into the concluding part of the land of Goshen, and it creates something of a triangle. And it is referred to as the Nile Delta. Uh, The reason for that, uh, the Greek language, and Greek was very prolific in this area at one time, uh, the capital D sound, delta, it looks as though a triangle. That's what the, it might look hieroglyphics in one sense, but that's what it is. And so that delta region as it comes up the river and fans out towards the Mediterranean creates that triangle. And there in that land of Goshen was the land in which the children of Israel had lived for a couple of generations. And I, in Genesis chapter 46, that I might mention here in a moment, they had went down, particularly when Joseph... Remember, he had been sold down into captivity. Uh, When he had become uh, the vizier of Pharaoh, something of a prime minister, uh, he made everything work in the king's palace, you know. He made everything accord. Uh, He created an economic disaster plan that saved not only Egypt, but the remnants of Israel and all the surrounding companies and expanded ultimately the coffers of Pharaoh and his preeminence in that region. And all of that happened, remember, because of a vision of which he saw cows in the river. Do you remember? And he interpreted that as so many years of fatness and so many years of leanness. And in that realm, it seems as though all of the people would come to that fertile area. Uh, This area of Egypt is unique in particularly because it is surrounded almost on all three sides by arid, uh, timberless land, really, almost desert-like, save the Nile region, and the Nile area. There's very little rain even today in the land of Egypt as there was even in the time of the Exodus. Uh, Not that they had no rain, I'm just simply saying they had very little of it. The fertility of the land and what allowed that Nile Delta to produce the grain that was necessary had everything to do with the flooding and the flushing of the sediment out of the river into its banks and particularly into that region of Goshen the Nile Delta. And through that, the ancient Egyptians and others would find that to be a very envious and fertile place in which to be held. And it was something that was prized and governed by all the pharaohs of all the kingdoms of Egypt. We come here in this particular time, Moses who was reared there, whose life was spared. We find about that in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. He was placed in a basket that was pitched in and out, set upon the river, and the daughter of Pharaoh found him and was raised in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, Some have theorized 
uh, that that daughter actually, the Pharaoh in particular, and this is a theory, so I won't even bother to get into all the details, but, but that the, uh, the daughter of said Pharaoh, he had no sons, and that she later assumed the reign and become a Pharaoh, and she had no children, and it went to another, and that had Moses not esteem the word and will of God more than the sin of Egypt, that it is highly likely that Moses reared an Egyptian, educated as an Egyptian, may very well have been a Pharaoh in those times. And that seemingly can correlate very well to Hebrews in chapter number 11. But he would leave after he lost his temper watching an Egyptian beat a Jew in slavery. And he would spend 40 years, about 40 years old when that left. And he would go into the wilderness for 40 years and work there uh, in the field as a herdsman for 40 years for his father-in-law Jethro. And he would bide there until there's a great Christophany and he sees of which a bush that burned, but it was not consumed. And God would speak to him. And there's a series, as I'm sure you're well acquainted, of excuses that Moses makes on why he cannot be the one that goes back to Pharaoh. And in each of those, there is a certain redress, uh, or rather, I should say, address, that God gives each of his redresses, each of his complaints, each of his willing compromises to God. And ultimately, he uh, submits to that will. And that's what brings you to chapter number 5. It's quite interesting in all of the historical accounts that one can read. There's a great question about chapter 1 and chapter 5 and even all the way back into Genesis, and that is this. Why is no Pharaoh's specific name mentioned? You'll never find a time in which it refers to him. Pharaoh was not his name. It was his moniker. It was his civic title. Who was the Pharaoh? I read a great article this week. It really wasn't great. I'm just trying to be kind. It was from Biblical Archaeology, and I read this whole, and I said, boy, they've dug some goody out of there, and I'm going to be able to apply it, and it's going to be wonderful. And it was written by this uh, gal that had her uh, DD, PhD, MIC, KY, you know, she had all these degrees behind her name, and I thought maybe she knows something uh, as it correlates to biblical uh, history and and ancient archaeologically uh, archaeology and uh, history of antiquities, and I'm, that something's going to be revealed. And she goes down and chases this rat down the hole and around the corner and gets to the final paragraph, and she says, see, obviously we can't prove any of this by archaeological history. Therefore, the story is to be seen only analytically or metaphorically, meaning it didn't actually happen. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that is posed a good question. Why, why don't we know who the Pharaoh is? When you come into the king's, and when you come into Isaiah, particularly that historical parenthetical expression of the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah clearly names the kings. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, he names all the regional kings. And he even gives you a historical background of how they became kings. One in particular that called his hour was Pekah, the king. And he calls him a name that evades me at this point, but he was an illegitimate king. He wasn't even of royal line. He was a guardsman that usurped the authority and killed the king and became king. And Isaiah took that as a personal offense in the message and preached at him. You come to the kings in the Chronicles and over and over again, articulated over it, names all of the regional kings. Be it if they're from like Ben-Hadad of Syria, or be that if they're from Jordan, or be that from the Transjordan area, or be that from Assyria, or even when it comes to Daniel, you're not 
misknown and to whom Nebuchadnezzar is. He's mentioned, he's a central theme throughout the book of Daniel. So then why is it that the God that inspired the word that those other holy men of God were moved on, whose names, or I should say who listed the names of these great kings that interacted with Israel, why is it that the writer of Exodus has no name? That's a pretty profound question. I think there's a lot of reasons behind that. In fact, there have been many guesses. And I'll submit to you that I'm pretty sure on who it's not. Let me share that one with you because I'm pretty sure about this one. Cecil D. DeMille, back in the 1950s and 60s, put out his Ten Commandments. Yul Brenner, some of you might be familiar with it. And do you know the parts that uh, Yul Brenner played? Remember the? Yes, he was Ramses II. I am near 100 complete certainty that the Pharaoh in the text is not Ramses II. I don't think that's at all. And that probably surprises you because you had put that to be absolutely historically true. That's where we get all our history today from Hollywood. It seems to me that historically there's probably two best guesses as to who the Pharaoh is, particularly in chapter 5. And that would come to being either the end of, as you look at the history of Egypt, it's divided into three groups, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. Now to us, the New Kingdom is still antiquities of old. The Old Kingdom, particularly in the first many years of the Old Kingdom, they had so much wealth, they had so much peace and safety, that's when the pyramids were erected. And the, the Sphinx and all of those great feats, that was the ancients of ancients, the Old Kingdom. Ergo, the Jews did not build the pyramids. We're not involved in that. And it would seem that if this Pharaoh in chapter 5 belongs to one of those old kingdoms, it was likely the last king of the old kingdom. And then the second guess, and I would think this to be probably better in time frame, is it's really the last king or one of the last kings of the middle kingdom. And that ancient kingdom and the middle kingdom are separated by about 400 years time frame. But in any case, I think that's perhaps who it is. The last major king of Egypt in the Middle Kingdom was a fellow by the name of Neferhotep. Neferhotep I. He reigned the longest of the last kings and uh, he dies and he had a son, but his son does not follow him because his son had preceded him in death. Uh, they don't know how. There's no, they just know that he had a son but that the son at some age had died, and then shortly thereafter, Neferhotep dies, and the kingdom, as far as the nation of Egypt goes, falls on quite difficult times, and there's a group of people called the Huxos, and they were really a Malachitish people that would invade because seemingly at the death or at the conclusion of the reign of Neferhotep, all of the main body of the Egyptians' armed forces do not exist. And as of such, the Amalekites are able to ride in and take the Nile Delta and secure the Nile. And there would be a window of time between the Middle Kingdom, Neferhotep being one of the last, and the New Kingdom, where Egypt would be the domicile of whatever foreign force would have her. And then it would revamp for that last crucial part of ancient Egypt. So that might be one of the reasons why. It seems as though there's very little in Egyptian history to do with the plagues of Egypt, and that would leave us to question. 
If such a cataclysmic event happens, why would we not find one parchment, one scroll, one stella, one evidence at all of anything regarding these Hebrews and their God and these plagues in all of the history of fabled Egypt? I think there's a number of reasons why. I think number one, and this is theologically aside, the historical accuracy of the Jewish people, and by that I speak of the Old Testament, is superior to human history. Meaning, over and again, archaeologists have been able to set and channel discoveries of the ancients by the account you and I hold in your hands. For instance, the designation of Elam outside of the Red Sea. They've been able to find that it was described as having 70 palm trees and Myra that had bitter water. And over again, there have been genuine archaeologists that have been able to find that based on the narrative of scriptures. For years, they would say that certain ancient kings did not exist. For many years, they said that the biblical account of the, of the, uh, of the uh, passion of our Lord, where he stood before Pontius Pilate, had to be fallacious because there was no Pontius Pilate. If he was a ranking individual and he truly was the governor of Judea, then he had to be accounted in Roman history. It would not be missed. And there was no historical account from archaeologists until one day in digging, guess what they found? A brick out of the city wall by the governor of Judea named the real deal guy. Over and again, the Old Testament, the history, and I'm speaking theologically aside for a moment, the history of the Jews has been pronounced accurate to a level of superiority that no other group or culture or nation could ever come close to. I would say of the Egyptians, oftentimes their history is full of, shall I call it, stretches of truth. I mean, come on. The son, literally, the son gave birth to your king. But that's what they would proclaim. Stretching the truth to great extents. I think another reason is you look at why there's none of this wreck in the Egyptian history. Because Egyptian history was not divinely inspired as the Jews, it was not divinely preserved. And many of the ancient histories of Egypt in particular have not been preserved to this day. It took them years and years and years and years to discover passages into the pyramids. They were lost to time. Even today when they find mummies and they find uh, statues and things of pharaohs, a lot of that history is recorded as it is probable. Probably what happened is this or that. Why? It's been lost to human time. It was not inspired. And if you have the Old Testament, that's proof of its inspiration if we need one. Another remark that I would give you is this, just from a personal note, as I wonder why the history is not recorded in Egypt, I would submit this to you. If I had a group of Jews, slaves, and I was the king, you with me? And you're in my court. And these slaves, I tried to persecute, but I couldn't bring them to extinguishing. Supernaturally, it would seem, as the mothers gave birth before my inquisitors could get there to kill them. And then 
this old goat-smelling preacher came out of the wilderness and told me to let him go, and I refused. And the God of gods rained down ten consecutive plagues on myself, and then I pursued them, and a bunch of untrained slaves and their God kicked my fanny across the Sinai Peninsula. I think I'd want to admit a lot of that from history, wouldn't you? I think that's likely another thing. Equally, at the conclusion of this, it would seem historically that the Egyptian society collapsed. It's possible during the civil upheaval that they had other things to concern with. There's any number of real reasons. I would not base the efficacy and the veracity of the, pro- of the book of uh, Exodus and all of these tribes based on the history of Egypt. But nonetheless, they are absolutely true. Now, when we deal with Pharaoh and Exodus, there are at least two of them in this account. Look over, if you will, in Exodus chapter 1. And I have here my notes. If you want, I can text it to you. There's a couple of great articles on this that you can look at in your spare time, but they're not pertinent to what I'm going to tonight. And so I just I want to set the theme as a consideration. But you've got Joseph that's sold into slavery and goes in, and you'll read about him in the 45th, 44th chapter of Genesis. And the Pharaoh has a birthday. When the Pharaoh has a birthday, they promote out of the prison the chief baker and the chief butler. It's sometime after his birthday that he has a dream and it troubles him. And his wise men could not interpret it. And one of those former servants... I believe it was the baker. I, I, I'm, the bees are getting me confused off lip. But they relate the prison time that they had spent with Joseph and how he had given their dream the interpretation. And so they bring Joseph out of prison. And Joseph approaches the Pharaoh, interprets the dream. That was that of the cows and the rivers, etc., and the years of famine, the years of feasting. And Joseph is promoted, becomes the uh, vizier of Egypt, and would go and thence and save all of those people. And that Pharaoh was inordinately kind to Joseph, insomuch that he allowed the 60, 70 some odd relatives of Joseph, Jacob and his brothers and their sons and their daughters and their wives, to descend and to well in Goshen. Now question, class. What's Goshen to an Egyptian? That's prime territory. Why? Because the king loved Joseph. And even though it would have been a bad decision if he was running for public office, because he was the Pharaoh, there was no upcoming election. And he could allow this and he saw this and he blessed Joseph because had it not been for the providence of Joseph, there'd been many an Egyptian dead. And remember, Joseph knew of this for what did he tell his brothers? Ye meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. Now, you come to Exodus chapter 1. You're approximately one generation, give or take, from... Joseph's time frame in chapter 1. And the reason we get this is going back to the 46th chapter of Genesis. And the 46th chapter of Genesis, it's laid out almost as a census report who the souls were that would go down to Egypt after 
Joseph has become the vizier, and it's naming all 12 brothers, and it lists their wives, and it lists their children. And then you come to chapter number 1, and you find out Joseph has died. You're one generation removed from the time they have went down. And you come down and look at verse 8. Now there arose up a king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And in these verses here, this is where they're given the jobs and impressed into servitude and slavery. You you find down in in verse number 11 that they set over them taskmasters to afflict with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh the uh, treasure cities of uh, of Fithom and Ramses. And they grew, the more they were uh, multiplied and grew, the more they were afflicted. And he made them serve in verse 11 with rigor. And he made their lives bitter, hard with bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. For all their service wherein they made to serve was with rigor. You know what he did? He put it to them. Then when you come to chapter 5, you've got 80 years that have passed. 40 years that Moses in chapter 2 where he's born would live in Egypt. And then another 40 years where he lived in the wilderness. 80 years would pass unless a king had served in that position for 80 years. It's highly unlikely it's the same Pharaoh. There's now a new Pharaoh that comes. The question remains, why would this Pharaoh in chapter 5 and the Pharaoh in chapter 1, why would he hate the both of them, the Jewish people to such extent that he would force infanticide upon them, that he would abuse them, that he would beat them, he would evict them from the land of Goshen and place them in other portions of of the nation. He would impress them. Why would he do... What did they do to him? I think the Scripture indicates the why. I think one of the reasons was Genesis chapter 46 makes it clear that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. I think number two makes it clear in Exodus chapter chapter 2, he feared the rate of their multiplication. If I can add this to it, the rate of their multiplication was directly related to the Abrahamic covenant. What did God say? I'm going to make of thee a great nation. He wasn't just talking about a a materialistic nation. He's talking about a populous nation. And of them, that was the cause. That was what God had for them. That was the blessing. They, unlike the Egyptians and all the surrounding society, looked at life in a far greater sense than any of those societies and nations around them. But yet that raises another question. If God had a sovereign plan and this ill has fallen upon them, you find in Acts chapter 7 and you correlate that with Exodus chapter 9, you'll find out that they were in Egypt 430 years and oppressed severely for 400 years. It's in the text. Acts chapter 7 talks about they were oppressed 400 years. So there seems that there was a 30-year window where there was benevolence towards them. But the overwhelming amount of it was nothing but far bitter oppression. Why? What was God's reason? 
what was God allowing all of these difficulties, particularly I speak of 400 years of oppression, why did God let that return? In fact, why is it that God uses 10 plagues at all? Why didn't He just do something miraculous like the 10th plague one time? I think there's an application. Why is it sometimes that God allows difficulty to happen to us? I think there's a number of reasons. I think for one, He was preparing Israel for their inhabitants. You know, they were going to go into the land that floweth with milk and honey, and that was going to be a cakewalk, wasn't it? That was going to be, what's the old saying? Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. That was going to be a piece of cake. Right? No. There's fortified cities, giants, treacherous ways. For 400 years, if they'd have had a piece of cake, would they have been mentally and physically prepared to engage in something? These times of rigor were preparing to develop their muscles and to toughen their hands for the work that lies yet ahead. By the way, the difficulties that come in our life, God is preparing His people. When difficulties arise that are not a consequence to sin, note it might be that God is spiritually strengthening you for something that lies ahead. One of the great difficulties that sometimes, or one of the great opportunities that we sometimes miss in a Christian life is when difficulties arise, our first prayer to God is not for grace, but it's for removal of the difficulty. And I'm not saying that we should not pray that. But if the sovereign, kind, loving God, who is loving kindness towards you, says, my grace is sufficient, then embrace the difficulty for the will of God's sake. And that's one of the reasons God allowed them to endure that oppression. There's another reason. He did so that they would be even more appreciative for the land of inheritance. My, if they went from the land of garlic... Uh, you know, I don't know if you like garlic or not. The land of melons. Later it's referred to as the dainties of Egypt. Cucumbers. If they went from the succulent, stay with me on this. The easy succulent life of Egypt to Canaan, the land of milk and honey. What would take these strapping men to carry one string of grapes with? How great do you think their thanks would be? You want a practical illustration? Visit a child's birthday get-together. If they had that experience every day, how thankful would they be? You adults that work so hard over the course of the week and you get a day off, how refreshing is that? Now I'm going to ask you a question. What if you had every day off? How refreshing would it be? It'd be the old hand. One of the things that happened during this time of great oppression is it allowed them to have a greater appreciation of what lied ahead. The comparison between slavery and milk and honey is far and vastly superior 
than what could have been had. I think there's a fourth reason, or rather a third reason, and that is God's sovereign plan. You see, Genesis chapter 15, turn there if you will for a minute, because this is a follow-through on the Abrahamic covenant. Look in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, and when you get there, you'll catch up with me about 15 or 16 perhaps. Said, and he said unto Abram, God saying to Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. What's he talking about? Egypt. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. It's exactly what was preached in Acts chapter 7. And also the nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. That happen? Yeah. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But, verse 16, in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the what? Amorites is not yet full. Why God let them wait so many years? Why did God not answer their prayer at the first time they prayed it? You want to know when the first time they prayed it was? About the first time that taskmaster crapped a, wick, a whip, you can bet there was a prayer revival going on. What Would have been in my life. And oh, there was a massive prayer time when they began to take straw, when they began to force them in every opportunity to rigor. How long would it take you before you fell on your knees and prayed to the God of heaven to deliver you? And God would have not. Why? He had a sovereign plan. See, there's a distant relative of Israel through Lot, the Amorites. And notice what the Lord said. Their time is not yet full. You know what he's saying? There's going to come a time that I'm going to judge this nation. But until I'm ready to deal with that nation, you're going to have to stay down there in Egypt. God's sovereign plan. And then I think there's a fourth reason for these plagues, for these trials, for these oppression. Why God allowed them to be so long, and I would submit this to you. God wanted to correct the nation for their past sin. You see, at the end of Genesis chapter 46, the old ten brothers of Joseph came up to him smiling. <laughs> Dear brother, <laughs> we didn't mean anything by it. We were treacherous to you. Do you remember this? We contemplated murder. We just about did everything this side of murder to you that we possibly could. We deceived and lied to daddy. We sold you into bondage. Isn't that interesting? Joseph was gracious to him. And that's in keeping with how a child of God ought to behave when someone wrongs them. But listen, there's no such thing as an uncorrected sin. You remember Romans chapter 13? He's talking in Romans chapter 13 about how to get along 
particularly with the government, with other people. He comes down to the end and he says this. Really, it might even be in chapter 12. He says, he says uh, dwell peaceably with all men as much as lieth within you. And then he admonishes them about vengeance. But then he adds this. Vengeance is mine. That's an important thing. The sin of the daddies and the attitude that the daddies installed in the hearts of all their descendants had to be corrected. Now what better way to be corrected than to give the nation of Israel, which is made up of the descendants of those tribes, a little taste divinely of what they gave innocent, God-fearing Joseph. That's a scary thing to think of. You see, Genesis chapter 46 wasn't the end of the story. Just because Joseph said, God meant it for good. And just because Joseph said, come in and let me feed you, does not mean that God said, it's all over with. There was a a required vengeance that God would take. There's a punishment that occurs. Let me show you an interesting verse just to consider for a moment. And I haven't got to Pharaoh yet, but look if you will. I want you to look in chapter, uh, chapter 8. The nation of Israel will get a unique sampling of some of the ten plagues that God fell upon Egypt. Not all of the plagues that fell upon Egypt were felt only by Egyptians. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh. And lo, he cometh forth to the water, saying to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into the houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms, of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. Look at verse 22. It's interesting. And I will sever in the day the land of Goshen. Why is that particularly? That's that fertile land. It's that delta area. It's the area in which the Jews resided. He said, I'll separate in that day. I'll sever rather the land in the day of the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord God in the midst of the earth. The previous plagues, they fell upon both of them. When the Nile is turned to blood, they both had to deal with it. But from this point on, and I think there's three plagues that precede this point. From this point on, something different is going to happen. God is going to turn and direct His full vengeance toward Pharaoh and subsequently, and by extension, the land of Egypt. God had a definitive plan. And part of the reason these plagues were sent, part of the reason there was oppression, had to do with His correction of the people of Israel. 
And I would note, at times, as we'll speak soon, at times, not you see so re, uh, repletely throughout scriptures, the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, but yet at times you see the same attitude that Pharaoh projected in the hearts of the people of Israel. That's what's so surprising. It's not difficult for my mind to grasp the connotation that you can have someone who has rejected the Creator to worship the creation like Pharaoh, and that's what he did. That's how he's polytheistic in nature. That's why he worships the sun god. That's why he worships his children. That's why he worships flies and frogs and lice and boils. They actually had a god uh, to the pestilence, as it were. That's why he worships the river and the sun. He's polytheistic. He's worshiping the creation more than the Creator God. He has rejected the holiness that God has revealed to him through the revelation of creation. It's not surprising to me to see that man harden his heart. It's not surprising to me either when I read in Romans chapter 9 how God allowed him to exist. I mean, this guy is such a knucklehead spiritually. You wonder why God doesn't kill him every day. God answers that question in Romans chapter 9. He said, I've allowed him so that I can manifest my person in glory by him and through him. And God did. God manifested His judgment and His mercy and His compassion in how He dealt with Pharaoh, the ungodly reprobate. Yet, if you look at how Pharaoh hardens his heart, how he addresses the situations God's brought into his life, how he responds to God, his complaints, his compromises at certain times, he says, hey man, you know what, why don't y'all go, but just don't go too far away. His deal-making... And then you start reading the rest of the Pentateuch. And I'll be if you don't see that also in the lives of the Israelites. Like in Ai, God said, send the whole force out. And the children of Israel said, well, you know, let's just send 30 of us or so. God said, I'm going to rain down manna. Don't go out on the seventh day and eat it. Don't try to hold it over. Any other day, but that sixth day. I'm trying to hold it over. And what did they do? God, can't you give us better water? God, why did you take... They imbibe in the same attitudes that Pharaoh does. This leads us to this. We could ask the question, why, who, what, when, and where, but one reason is this. Pharaoh stands as a type in one sense of the ungodly reprobate. And sadly, and sometimes, believers act just like that in our lives. Just as Pharaoh hardened his heart, there are sometimes believers that can go along down the road and, and have spiritual victories as part of something and can see God's handiwork and His blessing and His preservation in life and be just in one sense as hard-hearted toward God as Pharaoh was. That's a terrible danger. You know what eventually happened to the hard-hearted Israelites? Same thing that happened to Pharaoh, right? They received the judgment of God. What happened to hard-hearted Korah? The ground opened up and swallowed him. What happened to all those complainers? 
God sent poisonous vipers, killed many of them. What happened to all those Jews that were polytheistic in nature? Begin to worship all the pagan gods and then what happened? Pestilence. Thousands died in one day. My friend, there's a lesson for us. As we soon will look at the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, we ought once to take a picture, a mirror of our own heart and see how our heart compares. Because you know, you and I can be just in some sense, in some regard, by some comparison, hard-hearted as well. There arose a king. There arose a people. There arose a judgment. And there was a response that needed to be So it is and will be. Let's stand with Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 